And good morning, Calvary. Good morning to our online listeners as well. Wanted to make sure you are aware that uh, next Sunday, if you come, we are having a virtual only service, so don't come. <laughs> um, and that's appropriate timing with everything that's going on. However, Christmas Eve, we are having three services. So we hope that you'll come for Christmas Eve and bring your family for the candlelights and have a great time as we do that. We are in the middle of a series called Prophet, Priest, and King. And the idea of this series is that Jesus was the ultimate prophet, and that ultimate prophecies pointed to who he would be, which was the prophet we need, that his truth would never fail. So imagine this. This is the kind of the visual description we have, that the prophecies were kind of like the Christmas presents under the tree, longing for the anticipation of that first Christmas morning. And when that day came, we gained access to the presence of God because Jesus was the ultimate high priest. And so when he died for us, as he grew up in the Easter story, and the veil was torn, just like the shredding of paper on a Christmas morning, his body was torn, his, the veil was torn, we gained access to the Holy of Holies, and therefore we can have access to God himself as the high priest, the one who intercedes for our behalf. And this is the greatest present the world has ever known, His presence. And His presence should guide us and guard us, as was always the case, which is how we look at Him as the ultimate King. When we say the word King, we, we can have kind of a funny idea about that. What? Because we don't have kings. Well, really we're talking about the idea of government, the idea of authority, the idea of instruction. And so when you unwrap what this looks like, the thing about kings is we've always struggled with the idea of authority, even from the time when Adam and Eve were in the garden. Because you see, Adam and Eve were in the garden, and they were told, you can do whatever you want. They didn't need a king. Well, there was only two of them, right? But they didn't need a king, because God was supposed to be their king. But when they ate of that fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil— they began to know not only what was good, but they began to know what was evil. So the compare and the contrast became real because sin entered the world. And the reason they gave into that is because they wanted to do what they wanted to do. They wanted sovereignty over their life. They were trying to act like kings instead of following the king of kings. So as they were cast out of the garden, the struggle for how God would lead us took place. And in the Old Testament, you originally find that the, the early church, Israel, didn't need a king because they had God. And so God would allow them to have prophets and judges and, and guide them and guard them and direct them in the way that they would want to go. But what ended up happening was there's another group of people who would gather around who weren't following Jesus. And these other countries started establishing rules and authority because sin creeped in and they realized that they were going to lead to chaos. And chaos provided more chaos and more chaos and chaos. And so they needed someone to kind of reign in the chaos. Hear the word reign? So they had tried to establish a king who could reign in the reign. You got it? And so as they were doing that, the, then all of a sudden the people of Israel were like, but 
they have kings, so we want kings. And some of you right now are sitting here going, oh, this is very fascinating. Some of you are like, get to the point. Here's the point. There came a time when Israel longed to have the same king that the other nations did. They wanted a government like all the other countries. They have it, why can't we? You ever heard that? And in doing so, God warns them, be careful what you ask. In 1 Samuel chapter 8, we see the story of Israel asking for a king because they were not accepting the king of kings to be their ultimate authority. In 1 Samuel 8, 6, it says this, when they said, give us a king to judge us, Samuel considered their demand wrong, so he prayed to the Lord. But the Lord said to him, listen to the people and everything they say to you. They have not rejected you. They have rejected me as their king. They are doing the same thing to you that they have done to me since the last day I brought them out of Egypt until this day, abandoning me and worshiping other gods. Listen to them, but solemnly warn them and tell them about the customary rights of the king who will reign over them. They were saying, we want a government to come in. We want someone to come and establish a rule and authority to, to give us the guidelines. And God's saying, I should be that. But they wanted their salvation to come not from God, but from government. Has anybody ever, I don't know, is it, anybody? So Samuel warned them and told them all the Lord's words to the people who were asking them for a king. He said, these are the rights of the king or the government who will reign over you. He will take your sons and put them to use in his chariots, on his horses, or running in front of his chariots. He can appoint them for use as commanders of thousands or commanders of fifties to plow his ground and reap his harvest or to make his weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. He could take your daughters to become perfumers, cookers, cooks, cookers, cooks and bakers. He could take your best fields, your vineyards and your olive orchards and give them to his servants. He can get, take a tenth of your grain and your vineyards and give them to his officials and servants, taxes people. He can take your male servants, your female servants, your best cattle, your donkeys and use them for his work. He could take a tenth of your flock and you yourselves can become his servants. And when that day comes, you will cry out because of the king you've chosen for yourself, the government that you thought would be your salvation. And you're going to sit here and say, what's going on? But the Lord won't answer you on that day. And the people refused to listen to Samuel. No, they said, we must have a king over us. Then we'll be like all the other nations. Our king will judge us and go before us and fight our battles. We want a government to rule over us as long as they rule the way we think they should. We want a government to judge us. We want them to fight our battles as long as the government fights the battles that we want them to fight, right? So is the Bible against government? No, Romans 13:1 says the following, let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. We should pray for our governments. We should pray for our governing leaders. Even if we don't vote for them. We should be praying for our government leaders. Period. But the problem is, government will fail us. 
Why? Because human nature assures us that human kings will fail us. And let me put it to you like this way. I, I've told you many times I'm a pastor, right? And I know all of you are thinking pastors are perfect people, right? I, I, I know those of you who know me, you might even think that, right? I am clearly not perfect. My wife and my kids will shout it to the heavens that that is true. My best friends will tell you, yeah, Daniel's not perfect. We love him anyways, most of the time. And the reality of this is, I'm not perfect, and I will fail you. Why? Because it's in nature. There's times that even if I want to do what is right, I may not do what is right because I am so corrupted with sin but God. Governments will do this for us too. So if we're looking at the government to be our source of salvation, if we're looking to manipulate and control the government to be in control, to do what we want to do, we're putting our hope in the false places. We should put our hope in the king of kings and let him be the rule and authority of our life. So why do we struggle with this? Because we want what we want. Just like Adam and Eve in the garden, just like every human being that has ever walked on the face of the earth, we want what we want. And so we try to get people on our side, and we try to, to manipulate, and we try to, to coerce, and we try to, to gain a reputation, and we try to get everything like we want it to get so that we can feel at peace. But maybe we really need to understand that the only way to have peace is to place ourselves under the authority of the king of peace who should be our king of kings. So yes, we do need a government. And God is good by giving us structure, but we don't need to have our hope based in our government or even our pastors. We need to have our hope in the king of kings. Really, what we're talking about here is an issue of sovereignty. I want to be in control of what I want to be in control of, right? And if only I get what I want, but here's the problem. Getting what we desire we, or think we need is not always God's best plan for us. In fact, the fulfillment of our wants and desires can result in misery. You think you want to be rich until you have all that money in. Do you know how many people get divorced because they get rich? Do you know how many marriages struggle over that? Now, God allows some people to handle that really well, but a lot don't. You think you want to have all your family here for Christmas? That'll make you happy? Right? And then they show up and you're like, all these people are not acting like they, I think they should act. And what we're really saying is there, I'm not able to control the actions of other people. So maybe, just maybe, we weren't supposed to. Maybe, just maybe, that ultimately what we're about should be to point people to the King of kings and the Lord of lords and his presence, which is the greatest present. And when we trust his word, when we trust his rule, when we trust his authority, when we make him truly reigning over our lives, we will find the joy that we need. Now, if we don't, we're going to end up trying to be a king of our own world. So let's compare a king with the king of kings and see if we can see the danger of that. Enter King Herod. You may have heard of him. 
this guy in the story of Jesus? I don't know. Matthew 2, verses 1 through 4, here's what it says. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of King Herod, wise men from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in its rising and have come to worship him. And when King Herod heard this, he was deeply disturbed, and all of Jerusalem with him. So he assembled all the chief priests and the scribes of the people and asked them where the Messiah would be born. Now, the fact that King Herod was deeply disturbed in and of itself is not that alarming. Because if you came to me and you said to me on a Sunday morning, hey, Daniel, where's the pastor of this church? I might be a little deeply disturbed too. Why? Because I'm, I'm the pastor, Right? And so I'm like, oh, are you trying to? And so that in and of itself is not bad. But what, what you start to realize when you looked at Herod was that he was always this way. You see, at first glance, Herod wanted to be liked by the Jews. You can even see it the way he set this up. And he even tried to gain their favor by adopting much of their culture, by adopting their language, by trying to act like, you know, it's the 70-year-old man trying to act like a 20-year-old. You know what I'm saying? That's how Herod was with the Jews. I'm cool. I'm not a Geico commercial. I'm cool, right? And in doing so, he struggled because ultimately, Herod gained his power through lies and manipulation. And his goal was to persuade the people using their language and culture for his own benefit. And they saw right through it. Why? Because you will eventually show your cultures. Let me give you an example. When civil war broke out in Rome between Mark Antony and Octavian, Herod at first sided with Antony and his ally Cleopatra. Y'all ever heard of these people, right, in Egypt? And he sided with them, and he's like, yeah, I'm on your team. But then when Octavian defeated Antony and Cleopatra in Actium in 31 BC, Herod immediately switched sides, convincing Octavian he was a double agent. <laughs> Brilliant! Who wouldn't like to do that, right? Oh, I was with this guy over here. And, oh, they lost. I'm just kidding. I was actually a double agent the whole time. I was on your team, right? I know some people who do that in basketball games. Okay. And so <laughs> we always want to win, right? And so that he always did that. He kept trying to, to change sides. He was the epitome of a two-faced politician. Now hear me, not every politician is that way. But he was. I say what the people want to hear. So the Jews never fully accepted Herod because they knew Herod was only looking out for Herod. And that made him unliked and constantly paranoid. Because at the heart of the matter, Herod wanted to be in control because he wanted to gain popularity and fame and he wanted to be liked. Sometimes our control isn't always just because we want to put people in their place. Sometimes there's little ulterior motives that at first appear good like i want to be who doesn't want to be liked i'm a pastor i want to be liked do you want to be liked we all want to be liked if you don't want to be liked i think you're kind of lying which you may not like that's okay we all at some level desire to be loved and to love and and i think that's what herod really wanted so he thought if he could manipulate the circumstances to be popular he could be and when it didn't happen it turned him into this raging angry king so we pick up the story in Matthew 2, verses 7 and 8, and then verse 12. Then Herod secretly summoned the wise men and asked them the exact time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. And when you find him, report back to me so that I too can go worship him. 
that was a lie. And the wise men saw through it, because in verse 12 we see, And being warmed in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their own country by another route. You see, in this story, Herod at first presented himself as an authentic worshiper of God, but his actions proved otherwise. So let's very quickly compare and contrast a righteous king with a King Herod. Herod tried to manipulate his authority. Jesus, as the ultimate king, used his authority to serve. We like the idea of a king serving and fighting our battles for us, but when the king is ultimately about himself or herself, which would be a queen, then we ultimately realize this is, a, is fool's gold, right? Because Herod was consumed with himself, but Jesus gave himself away. Herod was trying to grasp an earthly dominion, a power, a kingdom, and Jesus' dominion would never fade away. Herod showed a glimpse of the worst of humanity while Jesus modeled how we should live. Herod was selfish, but Jesus is righteous. Jesus is righteous because he's still on his throne. This is the part where you might sit there and think, I'm really glad I'm not like Herod, <laughs> right? Uh-oh, we, maybe we are. I love this quote by Christianity.com. It said, Herod's by the dozen sit in the pews of many churches today. Outwardly, they appear devout and deeply religious, but inwardly, they're living a lie. They don't know God. They don't have a relationship with Him. And they may sing the songs and give to the offering. They may do all the right things, but it doesn't mean they're true worshipers because God looks on the heart. And what it's really saying here is, if the heart isn't about glorifying, exalting the King of Kings, then you're probably trying to make yourself a king or a queen, and you're missing out on what Jesus really came for. Because you see, when we give God control and allow Him to be sovereign over us, we find our purpose and our meaning, the peace and the joy because our king fights for us he protects us he guards us he guides us he made us he loves us and he wants us to rest with him so what gives jesus control what makes him the king of kings we can find this in ephesians 1 21 through 23 when it's talking about jesus and it describes him as far above every ruler and authority power and dominion and every title given not only in this age but in the one to come and he subjected everything under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of one who fills all things in every way. Now, there are a lot of scriptures that describe how God, through Jesus, is the king of kings. But this summarizes, this little passage that we just read in Ephesians summarizes how Jesus is the king of kings. You see, no one is above him. There is no authority above Jesus. Because he is God. So when you're going to him, you're going to the source. Isn't that comfortable? Comforting? I don't know why I said comfortable. Comfort, comforting? No one will ever be able to challenge his authority because he is still on his throne, which means he will never fall away or perish so that even in the difficulties of life, we know that we can trust in God because he is and always will be sovereign. So rather than trying to manipulate the world around us to get what we want, hear the warning for Christmas Day. Rather than trying to manipulate your kids by bribing them 
to behave well, show them how to behave well by pointing them to Jesus. Amen? Too soon? Rather than, than trying to get your life to be, understand that when you, the more you try to manipulate the world, the more do you try to control the world, the more you're really trying to stay sovereign over your life. You will never find peace doing that. Now hear me, I'm not asking you to be lazy. Get up, work hard, be diligent, love well, but follow under God's authority. Not your own. And in doing so, you'll find peace. And so, as you pick up the story, and we could keep reading in Matthew 2, we aren't going to, but basically it talks about the idea that Herod went off the deep end. And in fact, he did. And let this be a warning to us all, because you and I are capable of any sin. That's the best advice I remember receiving as a 19-year-old, because at that age, I knew it, but it didn't let sink in, that you could be the one who has an affair. You could be the one that kills someone. No, I couldn't. Yes, you could. You could be the one to do horrible atrocities because once you start giving into sin and control and wanting to be, you start running down a path where you have to keep filling and filling and filling your heart with things that are not of God. Herod epitomized this because he went down a path that was so bad. He eventually killed three sons, two wives, and a mother-in-law because of his paranoia. He killed six people in his family because he was convinced that his family was out to take away what? His authority. He was so paranoid and eventually led to his death that he realized he was not popular. He realized that no one ended up liking him when you kill six people in your family and you try to kill a bunch of others. Apparently, it doesn't make... But that's what he really wanted. I truly believe at the heart of it is he wanted to be liked. And when he didn't, he became a bitter, angry, paranoid man. So that at the time of his death, right before he died, he decreed the following. There should be a group of Jewish religious leaders gathered and murdered upon his death because no one... He feared no one would mourn his death and he wanted there to at least to be mourning at the time of his funeral. Thankfully, they didn't follow through with that. That's a wicked king. So, Merry Christmas. This doesn't seem very cheery, but we're going to wrap our, we're going to wrap up this bow because there's hope. When you place yourself under the authority of the King of Kings. All of a sudden, you don't have to figure life out. You don't have to have an answer for everything. He is the answer. You don't have to worry about the future because God is in control. Ask our brothers and sisters who come from the countries where true persecution happens, where they have to risk slipping in the middle of the night and being very quiet to worship at the risk of peril, and ask them why they do it. It's because they recognize that worshiping the peace and the king of kings, that even if the government of the earth tries to take away their freedoms, God is still on his throne and will be forever and ever and ever, and so they cannot defeat us. Amen? So what do we have to fear? The answer to this is we have to fear our own demise. 
because ultimately you only have two choices. Allow Christ to reign in your hearts and minds or give over to your own depravity, your own sin where you're trying to be in control. So what are some warning signs that we can get about building our own kingdom? What are some signs that we can learn from Herod? Here's what they are. One, do you have a continual absence of joy? That's a warning sign that you're trying to control everything. If you don't have joy in your life, it's because you haven't trusted in the King of Peace, the Lord of Lords. Now hear me, difficult times will come. Mourning, M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G, will happen. Weeping will happen, but you can have joy even in those situations because joy is not contingent on your feelings or your emotions. Joy recognizes that God is on his throne and nothing in this world can defeat us and therefore we can have hope that God will eventually rest with us. That's exciting. Second, a paranoia of others' intentions. Are you always worried what other people are saying behind your back? Are you always worried that what, what the government may do? Are you always scared of everything? And all, Are you living in paranoia? It means that you're trying to control your life. It's a warning sign that you're giving in to the temptations of this world. You are trying to be sovereign over your life. Third, a consuming jealousy. Trying to keep up with the Joneses. And I know we have Joneses in this church. They're hard to keep up with, right? But the reality is that's what we try to do sometimes. If only I could get that promotion. If only I could get that nicer house. If only I could get that nicer friend. If only I could get that girl or that guy to date me, assuming you're single. If only I could get this, whatever this look may be, then I'll... No. That's you trying to manipulate the circumstances of your life instead of trusting that God will give you what you need as you are faithful to Him in the appropriate time. And the last one is one I kind of struggle with. I probably shouldn't mention that out loud because I'm a pastor. I'm supposed to be perfect, right? But occasionally I can throw myself a little woe is me pity party. You know what that looks like, right? It's that place where like, no one understands me. I'm the hardest working redhead in this, you know, whatever. Oh, maybe that wasn't you. That may, that may have been too personal. And so you start feeling sorry for yourself instead of realizing, guys, look around. You're sitting in a comfortable padded chair in a perfect temperature room, able to worship the King of kings and the Lord of lords because his presence has come and you can have access to the holy of holies. You can walk with him. You're able to fellowship with him. You're able to have family in town and, and rejoice. You're able to go through many good things. And, and so when we rejoice and trust in God and, and place him on our authority, then we cannot be defeated. So what does this look like? Here's what I would challenge you this week, to lay down your kingdoms. Say, how do I do that? I want to give us a simple way to practice that by practicing two contrasting disciplines. So here's our daily training. In order to lay down, your king, lay down your kingdoms and allow God to be sovereign of your life, I want you to practice confession and rejoicing. Practicing confession is the place where you ask God to show you your sins. And like a horror movie on October 31st, God will show you. There's very few things I can promise you, but if you actually ask God to show you every way you've messed up, it will happen. And then you have to repent now, a lot of times we don't like to ask those because then we're actually going to see it. 
And that may feel uncomfortable and bring on series of guilt and shame. And what I would say is that is actually good because it reminds you that you don't need to be in control. And you can also see the detriment because the reason those things evoke those feelings for you is because you realize you've taken advantage of people. You've realized you've been about yourself. You realize you haven't really lived for the benefit of others. You've realized that you are trying to be control. You realize you're selfish. So maybe you want to practice that every night this week. And then the next morning, maybe you want to practice rejoicing. Because in the morning time, we're able to go, God, thank you for the fact that my dysfunctional, I mean, my family is coming in town today. God, thank you that we have food on the table. Thank you for the gift of your son, that your presence is with me, that even when I fail you, that you forgive me, that your love covers me. Thank you for the good and the hope and the joy I have. You see, when we rejoice, we're reminded that God is sovereign because we see his blessings. So as the old hymn says, count your blessings, name them one by one. Count your blessings and see what God has done. Count your many blessings, name them one by one. Count your many blessings, see what God has done. So today we're going to give you a brief snippet of what this week could look like. And we're going to practice confession and rejoicing through a time of communion or the Lord's Supper. So we have some deacons in the back who are going to pass these out. If you did not want to get with these and you have a relationship with Jesus, we'd ask you to raise your hand. You may awkwardly at this point up here, you may awkwardly at this point start ripping them off. Um, make a lot of noise. There's the cracker portion and the juice portion, and we're going to take these together in a few moments. So if you'll hold on to them. What I would like to say um, as we do this is what I'm going to do is we're going to provide a little space here. And in just a moment, I'm going to give you about a minute. We still have a couple more back here. Keep your hands up. They're coming to you. And what we're going to do is I'm going to give you about a minute. And in this minute, I'd invite you just to ask God, show me what I need to confess and allow yourself to feel the angst there. We're going to come back to rejoicing. But for just the next 45 seconds to a minute, can you ask God in this moment, God, show me how I failed you. Show me. And then repent of those actions. Maybe even now you're having feelings of enormous guilt and you're like, I don't like these feelings. I got good news for you. Jesus died for, the, for you. And Jesus reminded us that even though we need to practice confession, he also said, when you gather, I want you to break off a little piece of bread and to remember that my body was broken for you. That my body was broken to cover the mistakes and the sins of your world. Take this in remembrance of me. And he said, 
my blood was poured out for you and through the cleansing of my blood which this is juice obviously but it represents what Jesus did through a dying on the cross for us and that his blood grants us access to the joy of his presence so he lifts us up out of a time of needing to repent and to seeing his presence in his face so take this in remembrance of me And then going out in the world to live for him in the daily Christmas presence of making him the king and the Lord of our lives, I think it was no mistake that they went out and sang a song of rejoicing before they went out. So today, we're going to thank God for his forgiveness. And we're going to rejoice because he is alive he is on his throne. He is the King of kings, the Lord of lords, Emmanuel. God has come. His presence is here. And all God's people said, Amen.